I wonder if you were to think about it this morning uh, and I ask you the question, what are the three most important words uh, in the world, regardless of uh, when you live, regardless of where you live, any age, any time, uh, a phrase, a statement, a truth, what are the three most important words uh, in the world? As I to say, Gail is wonderful. She is. And that's probably something husbands are thinking right now about their spouse. Um, would you mind getting that other pack if this is going to be? <clears throat> that's a very important thing to say, something we ought to say, but those three words uh, are not the most important words in the propose uh, that the three most important words uh, ever, you could ever speak are Jesus is. I want to give you two reasons I say that, but before I do, I'm going to change this pack because uh, what I have to say this morning is important for you to hear, so bear with me. All right. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for this morning. Uh, thank you for uh, the privilege of worshiping you. Thank you for uh, every man, woman, uh, and child who has gathered, uh, not only in our church, but in households of faith uh, around the world. May your believers, may your followers worship you in spirit and in truth. And for those who have gathered in houses of worship around the world today, uh, may their eyes be open to the truth, the superlative truth, that Jesus is God. And then may they see uh, the grace and the mercy and the goodness that have come to us from your good hand, in Christ's name, amen. So Jesus is God would be my contention, and I give you that for two reasons. Uh, because once you believe that, once you embrace the radical truth that this human being who walked on the earth, who could be touched and seen and heard, that he was no ordinary man, but in fact was the Son of God, everything in your life changes. Everything that you think that is, you will see everything different. It is impossible uh, in your, for your world to be the same. The truth of that statement uh, is radically transformative. And if it hasn't been, then the question you must ask is, do I actually believe what I say I believe? And then uh, my, I would back up my contention with the fact that at some point, either in this life, but certainly in the next. Every human being who has ever lived is going to concede to the truth of that statement with their own lips. You may not say that today, but hear me when I tell you, one day your lips will utter that statement in belief. That's what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2. The apostle Paul gives us a picture of an event that is yet to come. It follows the, uh, the end of human time as we know it when every man, woman, child, every human who's ever lived is going to be presented before God. Uh, and this is how that scene unfolds. Philippians chapter 2 says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Which knees? Well, the ones that are in heaven and the ones that are on earth and even the ones that are under the earth. And every tongue is going to confess Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now that word Lord there is the Greek word kurios. It's a name that the Bible uses of God. And it means one who exercises supernatural ability and power over mankind and creation. 
So there you go. The three most uh, powerful and important words, the three most transformative words that you can say in the world, and more importantly, that you can know and believe is Jesus is God. And that you come to know that, and that you come to believe that is terribly important because there's, there's coming a day when uh, your opportunity to discover that in this life will end. One day uh, when all has passed away, this, this world that we know it, uh, one day every tongue, believing and unbelieving, is going to confess that only for those who depart from this life without faith, those words then will not be life-changing or eternity-altering. You will just acknowledge that it's true in your rejection and rebellion to believe. And that's the issue uh, in Mark. This is what Mark is all about, uh, that Jesus is God. And that kind of frames our passage today as the epicenter of that thought because we really get to see in this passage of people grappling to come to understand that this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God. So though people have constantly uh, been uh, astonished by Jesus, the New Testament only records two times when Jesus is amazed by people. Both stories involve faith. One is positive and one is negative. Uh, Jesus marvels at the strong faith of the Roman centurion in Capernaum. Luke chapter 7 verse 9, Jesus says, I say to you, even in Israel, I have not found such a faith as this man's. But then our focus, conversely, the negative, the second time was in Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. Here it is the utter absence of faith that causes the Lord to be amazed. Unbelief is a powerful force with devastating ramifications in this life and also in the next. And it's an age-old problem. We see it all throughout uh, the Old Testament. We have already, uh, this point, six chapters into Mark, we've seen it in the life of Jesus. And it's going to continue as Jesus uh, gives his life on the cross and is resurrected and the church begins. In fact, uh, Peter says in Acts chapter 7, You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Rejection has always been around when it comes to God's people, when it comes to people in this world, and it even exists in our day. A host of reasons, a myriad of reasons when I pastorally interact with people uh, that are uh, at arm's length holding Jesus at bay. There's a myriad of reasons to reject a myriad of questions to ask, but the, the bottom line is the same. They're asking, uh, they're standing in a position of unbelief. And what we need to recognize, what we learn from this story, is that unbelief in the Son of God activates divine wrath. Can I say that again? Unbelief in the Son of God activates divine wrath, and it catapults a person toward a life in, in this life and in eternity separated from God's love and mercy and forgiveness. That's precisely what John chapter 3 says, verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Verse 18, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Now, to this point in our journey, especially in the last few weeks, the triumphal progress of Jesus 
uh, throughout the recent part of Mark, uh, Mark's narrative, is in danger of uh, leaving us, uh, the reader, with a false sense of security. One after another, the forces of wind and water, uh, demonic possession, I mean a host of demons, um, legion, chronic uh, and persistent illness, and even death have yielded to Jesus' authority. The reader might be inclined to think that there's something almost automatic about Jesus' success. This story brings balance to that idea, and it reminds us that the effect of Jesus' exousia, his power, is not to be taken for granted. So if faith uh, was pivotal in the healing of the woman we met last week, uh, with the issue of blood. If faith was, was uh, imperative to uh, the, the raising of Jairus' daughter, then what are we to expect where faith is absent? Well, that's what we see here. Now, the setting is the town of, of Nazareth. Uh, Nazareth is about 25 miles from Capernaum. Of importance, you should note as we go through these six verses, uh, Mark, it seems, uh, 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 deliberately desires to avoid naming the city that rejects its famous son. Um, there's really not a lot to say about Nazareth. It's not mentioned in the Old Testament. Uh, It's not mentioned by Josephus the historian. It's not found in rabbinical literature of the Talmud or the Mishnah. Archaeological excavations have shown that the town was an obscure town of earthen dwellings uh, chopped into 60 acres of rocky hillside with a total population that wouldn't have exceeded 500. But like every other area, reports of Jesus' mission have continued to reach his hometown so that his return to his hometown as the prodigal has a natural interest. Reports are more significant than they might appear at first. The people, this people, uh, no people in the world could boast of more prophets uh, or learned scribes and rabbis or sages than the Jews. The field in which Jesus distinguished himself as a teacher like no other, who did works like no other, uh, is crowded and competitive. Jesus' prestige caused a dilemma for uh, people because they were well acquainted with who he was uh, from his growing up in their city. Uh, But he uh, 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 he wasn't just a man. But the problem the, Nazarite, the, the, the people of Nazareth are going to have is that they, they look at Jesus and say he wasn't even schooled by a, an elite rabbi. Not only that, when you consider the home that he comes from, he, 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 couldn't, he couldn't possibly have been taught these things in his own home. Additionally, the reports are significant because this is the second time Jesus has come to Nazareth. And the first visit ended quite negatively. We'll visit that account. So Jesus has left Capernaum after this uh, display of uh, incredible show of power, and he returns to Nazareth, and as he does, he's going to go to the synagogue, uh, and once again, uh, he's going to be invited to teach. And he's going to find the people are already set against him. They're going to question his education and where he gets his power from. They're uh, going to degrade his uh, lineage and his line of work in an attempt to set him aside as someone they should consider as the Son of God. Verse 1, he went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. The word there, hometown, is uh, the Greek word patrida. It literally means fatherland. This is the area in which Jesus' family lived, but he's not coming here uh, for a social visit. He's coming here, uh, as he did everywhere once his ministry began, to do ministry. 
As I said, this is Jesus' second visit to his town, uh, hometown of Nazareth. The first is recorded in Luke chapter 4. Luke tells us that immediately after Jesus was tested in the wilderness, he went to his hometown. And he went to the synagogue, uh, and he was going to be invited to speak, as a rabbi would be. Uh, and when he rose to speak, uh, everyone recognized, this is Jesus this is a little guy who grew up in our town. We know about him. We, we know about his family. We've watched him all these years uh, grow up around us. He's just an ordinary guy from Nazareth. Yet what happened on that day was anything but ordinary. In Luke chapter 4, when Jesus rose to speak, he took the scroll of Isaiah and he read these words, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And with that, Jesus rolled up the scroll and he said these words. Today, this passage has been fulfilled in your ears. And with that, the crowd was incensed. Why? Because it's obvious, the implication is clear, Jesus was claiming to be the Messiah. He is God. And in his first visit to his hometown when his ministry started, everybody rose up, rushed Jesus out of the synagogue, through the city, to the brow of the hill that the city was built upon, and they sought to cast him down to his death. Why? Because he was saying, Jesus is God. And that's how his first visit ended. Now, a second visit we find them less hostile, curious even, but still, nonetheless, no more responsive. Verse 2 of chapter 6 continues, And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is this wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? So they invite Jesus to teach, and they at least recognize at this point that he's become a person of significance. So they're intrigued to see what he will say, to see what he will do. But their seeming goodwill is betrayed in their question. They've known this guy all his life. You know somebody all their life, you grow accustomed to calling them by their name. I've only known some of you for three and a half years, but I call Justin, Justin. I call Todd, Todd. They didn't call Jesus, Jesus. They called him that man. See, they're, they're, they're not interested in what he has to say. Even though they've known him his whole life, they're out to reject him. It says they were astonished. Their astonishment isn't a focus on the obvious. The obvious is nobody has ever taught like this guy has. Nobody's ever done the works that this guy does. Instead of focusing on the obvious, they focus instead on the irrelevant who is he? Where did he come from? How did he get this power? Uh, the Greek word here for astonishment means literally to strike or to blast, to knock out. They're knocked out by what Jesus says. Only they're not knocked out in the sense of being drawn to repentance and faith. They're knocked out in the sense of finding a way to continue in their rejection. Now, don't get me wrong. Their questions are important. The answers to these questions, who is Jesus, where did Jesus come from? What is this work that he has done? These are important questions. Answers to these questions, uh, coupled with faith, are the only things that lead to salvation. Yet, the problem that the, the citizens of Nazareth had was that their heart attitude was one of disbelief and skepticism. Their questions were not, they were rhetorical. They weren't asked to discover. 
Like uh, the scripture says, he who seeks the Lord will find him. If you're interested in knowing God, if you're interested in knowing the truth, you, can fi- you will find that God will bring you along in a way that cultivates faith in your heart and confidence in who he is. But if you're asking with disdain and rejection, then you will find that your heart is only going to grow closed harder and your mind is only going to grow closed. It's interesting, they didn't dispute his wisdom or his mighty works. They acknowledged that nobody talked like him. Nobody could do these things. But they were determined already that the source of Jesus' teaching and power was nefarious. It was evil. At issue for the people of Nazareth is a suspicion about Jesus' character. They, they felt that an uncertain origin, if they couldn't prove that what Jesus was saying was true, that leads to an uncertain character. The people of the town of Nazareth were confronted uh, with C.S. Lewis's trilemma, to paraphrase, if Jesus is not the Son of God, he's a lunatic. If his words are not the truth, he's a liar. And if his power is not given by God, then he's in league with the devil. But Jesus wasn't just the kid that they had watched up, grow up, and overachieve. He wasn't just another synagogue preacher. He wasn't just encouraging people to obey God or to have hope for the future or explaining some prophet's word in the Old Testament about the kingdom. Jesus was speaking on his own authority that the kingdom of God was coming now, right then and there. He was saying to them, where I am present, the kingdom is present. And if there was any doubt about what Jesus was saying, he was demonstrating his power through great works. But there was doubt in Nazareth. And so they sought to question the legitimacy of his education. Like he wasn't qualified for the job of Messiah. They questioned the source of his empowerment. Like where, do, where could he even get this power? Certainly not God. That's the implication. And then verse 3, they're going to then demean his family and his line of work. Verse 3 says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. There's a contemptuous tone uh, in how the the, the people of Nazareth address Jesus on this particular day. See, they live in a world where gender and geography and generational descent, those are thought to determine one's identity. Jesus' audience is offended because he's purporting to, to know something that they don't know to be able to do things that, that they can't do. And, and for them, uh, they, they simply look at him and say, you, you don't have the heritage to be this. You, you don't have the family to come from to be this. They refer to Jesus, it's the only place in the New Testament as, uh, as the uh, tecton. This is the word for carpenter. It's, it's one who works with wood or stone. Now, there's nothing derogatory about them pointing out that he was a carpenter. In Jewish culture, there was no work that wasn't honorable or noble. They're simply saying, uh, by, uh, by identifying him as a carpenter, that no one from your station in life can ascend to this. This is not what Messiah uh, would be, someone who works with wood and stone. There's a, a great irony here that they denigrate him for being a carpenter, and yet Jesus really is the one that you go to when you need a fix. He really is the one who's building something. He's building a building, a a body called the church. He is the author of everything that is. He, He 
constructed all of creation, and yet they can't see it. They call Jesus the son of Mary. There's no mention of Joseph here. Likely at this point, Joseph is already deceased, but still, in Jewish custom, you were required to use someone's patronymic, their father's name. That's their line of ascent. So this was at least clearly questionable, probably disrespectful, and maybe even insinuating illegitimacy. Their hearts were not open to who Jesus was. They were just set out to disregard him. Of his brothers, only James and Jude are mentioned again. Sisters are unnamed. This probably means that they were already married and had lives of their own. But the point is that Jesus had an earthly family. Uh, Mary had other children. This uh, undoes the, the Roman Catholic doctrine of Mary's perpetual virginity. Okay, it's not about Mary. It's about Jesus. And Jesus is uh, the unique, the, the, the unique God-man, fully God and fully man. And yet, they were blind to that. Uh, they were astonished, but also offended. The verb uh, for offended is the Greek word scandalon. It's the word we get uh, scandal from. It literally means to snare or to create a stumbling block. It's a, a deep religious offense. In this case, it's, a, it's in the imperfect, suggesting that it's an ongoing condition. They've been scandalized. They've been offended by him since he first came home. They didn't know who he was, but when he came home the first time, it created a scandal for them. They, they were revolted by the mere insinuation that he was Messiah, and that has only persisted. During his first visit, Jesus had similarly offended the people by claiming to be Messiah and also confronting them with their hypocrisy and unbelief. His person and his presence was a scandal to them. And friend, until you get right with God, the same thing exists in the undercurrent of your life. The mere notion that there is a God who condescended to clothe himself with flesh and to die in your place leaves you feeling scandalized because it forces you to recognize who you are, your unbelief, and your need for a Savior. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 1. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called both Jews and Greeks. Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. They didn't need to believe in Jesus because they could simply dismiss him as the local handyman. By questioning his lack of education and the source of his power, by bringing up his occupation and family to denigrate it, the people of Nazareth turned irrelevant issues into stumbling blocks to defend their unbelief. The dear sister here this morning, who God, I'm privileged, allowed me to, uh, to be instrumental in her coming to Christ. I remember page upon page of questions. And I finally just said, you know, how many of these questions we've got to answer before you consider that it's true? And, and, that, and that's true maybe for some of you today. There are so many things you're willing to point to that are really just a distraction from the major issue. The major issue is your heart is broken. You're a sinner. You're an object of God's wrath, a God who loves you and has come to provide for you. Yet the people of Nazareth couldn't see that Jesus was the Son of God. Jesus responds by citing a well-known proverb. 
in verse 4. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. The title of this message is Familiarity Breeds Contempt. We use that expression to say, hey, the people you grew up around, like the people who grew up around Jason Grossi, <laughs> they're apt to judge him by the things he did in his youth. And pure tell, he did some things. <laughs> and so we, it's hard for us because people who really know us know about us. But the, iron, the irony is that this isn't true with Jesus. Like, they were familiar with who he was, who he had been. He was no ordinary child. He wasn't doing the things Jason was doing when he was little. And yet they didn't really know him, but they still chose contempt. What's true about us is not true about Jesus. There are no people that know Jesus when he was sowing his oats, when he was doing things a young man shouldn't do. And yet still, in spite of that, with all of their advantage, uh, all they could do is reject. Isaiah prophesied accurately that Jesus would be despised and rejected by men, that he would be treated without honor. Mark gives this saying a fuller and more emphatic form, listing rejection not only in the fatherland, but among his, his uh, extended family and even in his own home. Each circle gets more restricted and more personal. And this just serves to underscore that exposure or proximity to Jesus and the gospel is no guarantee of faith. In fact, apart from faith, from childlike faith, the gospel often repels as much as it redeems. So Jesus says, and, or Scripture says, verse 5, And he could do no mighty works there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. What a delightful irony. Because of their rejection, he, he couldn't do a, a lot of mighty works there, but he slipped in some miracles, just the same. He still heals some people. Now, the... the the issue here wasn't Jesus' lack of supernatural power to perform miracles. That should be obvious. If he uh, speaks and a, a storm is calm uh, and the, the sea grows pristine, if he uh, speaks and a legion of demons has to leave a man, if he, uh, if he is touched without even words and a woman is healed, if he touches a child and raises them to dead, it's not a lack of his power. The purpose of his miracles was to, to, to attest to the truth of who he was and to lead men and women towards salvation. It would have been morally and spiritually inconsistent for Jesus to stop down and do a bunch of great stuff in Nazareth. Because wherever the kingdom is rejected, it is inappropriate for the king to extend its new life and its joy. This is a valuable lesson for us. Lack of faith hinders Jesus working. You want to see Jesus working in your marriage? If a child in your life you'd like to see Jesus working in, then you better not come from a position of rejection. You better not come from a position of skepticism. You need to press into your faith that he is who he says he is, and this just invites him to work in our lives and in our families. Verse 6, and he marveled because of their unbelief, and he went about among the villages teaching. Story ends in verse 6 with amazement and wonder, like pretty much every story before, only in this unique case, it isn't the crowd, it's Jesus that is amazed. This is a portrait of Jesus' humanity. He could get tired, he could get sleepy, he had to be tested in every way like we are, 
yet without sin. In this case, he was amazed. It says he marveled. It means uh, to be jarred with their deep-seated faithlessness and open hostility. Despite their many advantages, he grew up among them. They had heard him preach in power. They have had story after story of the display of his miracles. And he's even graced his hometown with a return to them. And yet they're blind to see Jesus' identity. They're deaf to his message. And their hearts are hardened against him. We are confronted here uh, with the mystery of God's kingdom. Some who have every opportunity to believe do not And some, like the demoniac, who we would never expect to believe, do. No one can predict who's going to be an insider and who's going to be an outsider. What we do know is that Jesus says the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Why is that? Well, we see it in the people of Nazareth. I'm going to give you two takeaways, and then I'll close. Number one, you cannot reason your way into redemption. Your reason is going to lead you in the wrong direction. The human intellect is incapable of ever possessing enough knowledge and understanding so as to be made new. There aren't enough books You could read every book in the world. You could have the finest education and just continue on. And it's never going to change who you are at the core of your nature. Now, we don't have to check our brain at the door. Quite to the contrary. Uh, We as image bearers of God are meant to grasp high and lofty things. This is why we ought to pursue an understanding of God's word. Because God can teach us things that we wouldn't have thought before we could understand. Look what he did with some fishermen. Look at what he did with the person next to you. Isaiah 55 says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. The only hope for fallen nature, the only hope for depraved minds, is that our source of salvation is God and God alone. Yet God is inscrutable. That means he cannot be investigated or understood. This means that we cannot know him. We are not capable of coming to know him apart from his revealing himself to us. And friends, he has done that in Jesus Christ. You cannot reason your way into redemption. This is certainly true for the unbeliever. Listen, if you're you're a questioner by nature, I'm just going to tell you right up front, you're going to keep asking questions until you die. Reason does not get you to redemption. Faith does. But this is also true for the Christ follower. When we come to Christ, get a whole new lease on life, and then we think it's just we can do what we want. That's not the case. We're not going to reason our way into redemption. We're going to have to walk with him by grace through faith as he shows us what he must do in us. So Jesus says, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. We must maintain the posture of a a child who simply hears the Father speak and trusts Him to do it. God doesn't require a towering intellect that you should be born again. Only that faith that He is and that He rewards those who seek Him. Do you believe? Do you believe that Jesus is God? 
Do you believe that, uh, that Jesus in his life and his work upon the cross and then the, the proof of the empty tomb that he was providing for the forgiveness of your sins, redemption for you, have you placed your faith in that? Proverbs chapter 3 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Heart, not hardened, but trusting. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Verse 7 continues, be not wise in your own eyes. That's the problem of the people of Nazareth. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshment to your bones. What gets us to what our, our hearts long for the most? It's not your intellect. It's not your brain pan. It's not your high IQ. Those things may come into play when God has changed your heart, but until then, the only thing that gets us to redemption is faith. Second, you cannot remake your own heart and soul over in righteousness. The human heart is incapable of attaining saving faith apart from the work of Jesus Christ and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. If we mentally ask the right questions, yet our heart attitude is wrong, then we will always arrive at the wrong answers. The people of Nazareth were haughty and prideful, anything but humble, in the face of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Persisting down that path was not going to help them. In fact, it was an act of grace that Jesus walks away from Nazareth without doing greater miracles because when he's con condemning uh, other cities uh, later in, uh, in the Scripture, he says it would be better for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for Chorazin and, and places where he had done mighty works. Jeremiah 17 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. I'm talking about you. I'm talking about me. We're living a delusion if we think otherwise. You need to embrace this verse. It's humbling. But humbling before God is helpful. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. This means our posture rightly begins with an honest appraisal of our own lives. The people of Nazareth were really quick to set in judgment about Jesus' life. What they really needed was a mirror to look at themselves, to understand that they are not reliable judges or arbiters about what is right and true. You need a teachable spirit. I told that someone this, this past week in having a, a back and forth about a disagreement. I told them, I, I live in a place of teachability. Like, I don't know week to week what the Lord wants me to say unless I'm teachable. I find in too many Christ followers a, a distancing from being teachable. They, they, they find something they think they know, and now they think they're ready to teach. If we would have what God wants for us, then we may, must maintain a humble, teachable posture. Do you truly recognize? Maybe you're an unbeliever today, and, and, and if you were honest with yourself, you would say, I've heard these things before, but I've never said, Jesus is God. I've never identified the deep need that exists in my own life. It's, it, it's so evident when I look at myself in the mirror, when I look at my relationships, when I look at how world, the world life is going for me. Maybe today is the day that you would say, you know what, I'm, I'm going to connect the dots. 
I'm going to say, I recognize my need, and I believe Jesus is God. Maybe you're a believer, and you would say, I believe all these things. I believe Jesus is God. I, I profess Jesus as my Savior. I believe that he died on the cross to forgive me of my sins, but the truth is, I don't always live like I believe that. Because if you believe that, friends, it's transformative. And the transforming never stops. Not until you breathe your last. Some of us need to press in again to our belief and allow the Lord to continue to change us. Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. What amazes God about humanity is not our sinfulness and propensity for evil. He's been dealing with that for a long time. He knows who you are. What amazes him is the hardness of our heart and the unwillingness to believe him. Nazareth had every opportunity. They watched him grow up. Even if they didn't understand, it was so obvious that, that a teacher like this could not come from human education, that works like these could only be done by the finger of God. We're not too dissimilar from them, and this is the greatest problem in the world because Jesus has come, and he's addressed our need, and herein lies divine judgment on humanity. Humanity wants a spectacular sign from God. Or like the devil, a great display of his divine power. We want something less ordinary and more unique than a suffering savior. Give us something akin to a Marvel superhero. That's what we want our God to be. We don't want God to become like a man, like one of us. Yet this is the only way he could atone for our sin and provide for our salvation. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of man to accept, to accept a God who condescends only as a carpenter, the son of Mary, and yet he is so much more than what we see at first. Jesus is God. Nazareth is a foreshadowing. As so often is the case in Mark, there's a pointer here towards a time when Jesus will come to the city in which God's presence is promised to reside, to Jerusalem. He will enter as Messiah to a place he would rightly think of as his home away from heaven, and he would go to the temple where the Messiah would, he thought, ought to go. Yet there too, he will also be rejected, and that time, it will be with fatal consequences. Death. But not just any death, not the death that you will die, not the death that I will die, a death that gives way to resurrected life, to the forgiveness of sins, to transforming an ordinary man or woman like you to reflect the image of your maker. Familiarity, when it comes to Jesus Christ, does not breed contempt. It breeds character. It breeds conviction. It breeds life change. This church, we are called to. Let's pray. 
Father, thank you for your great love for us, for the gift of your Son. May we, uh, your people, not be like the town folk of Nazareth. May we recognize that our minds are not like your mind, that though you have created us in your image and given us the capacity to, to know and to wrestle with and to understa- understand things that are too sublime to speak, that we are utterly dependent upon you, the creator, the all-knowing, all-wise God, to lead us to that place. Protect us, Lord, we pray, from haughtiness or pridefulness, from sitting in judgment either of you, our Savior, or of others around us. And then, God, we ask that you would tenderly help us to recognize the depravity of our own heart. We sang it earlier. Our hearts are prone to wonder. We pray for your mercy and for your grace. I ask, Father, that you would help us to take steps that are born out of what we say we believe out of our recognition of our great need for you and of the goodness of our God. And for the one who does not know you, I pray, Father, that you would deliver them from walking in the footsteps of the people of Nazareth, rejecting only one day in eternity to acknowledge they rejected the most important three words in all the world. Jesus is God. We pray this in your name. Amen.